I want you to think for just a moment about your family table from the best family meals in your upbringing or in your life uh, and who you see there. Who do you see when you think about the best, like whatever the golden era of your life or family was, who was at that table? Okay, I'm going to show you mine. Uh, if you would go to that picture, I think it's slide two. This was mine, okay? This is not the family table, but this is the golden era of my life, all right? Uh, my, the golden era of my life was at my grandparents' house. They had this massive wooden uh, table, huge, and it had this cuckoo clock that overlooked it, and I can still remember that clock being there over the table. And at the table, this photo was taken when my parents were uh, still together. John Belushi on, on the left over there is actually my dad. Um, and, and that's me, little sailor over on the left, okay? Um, and, and slightly after this would have been the golden era of my life. And, and so when I think about the table, here's who I see. I see my granddad sitting at the head of the table. And uh, he was a smaller guy. When my granddad was born, he actually weighed two pounds in 1923. They carried him around for years in a shoebox. But he was a cop and um, a probation officer. And he was a fairly intimidating figure to be such a small guy. He just had a lot of gravitas for a smaller, uh, very unassuming guy. Uh, and, then there was, and then beside him was my grandmother. And then beside my grandmother would have been over here on the left, or uh, over on the right, my, my Aunt Pam. And then at the, or excuse me, my mom would have been beside my grandmother, and then my Aunt Pam, and then my Uncle Wayne over on the far right would have been at the other end of the table. And then coming around would have been my Aunt Louise, who's in the middle, and then her husband Frank, who was the oldest of the kids. He was the one who would uh, cough, spit into the the cloth napkins at the table, right? I can still uh, see all of them sitting there. My parents divorced when I was four. My dad was really out of the picture, uh, really by the time I was two, as far as those meals then there was the kids' table. How many of you sat at the kids' table for a lot of years of your life? All right, absolutely. At the kids' table, uh, it was, um, we were a different breed. We were a different breed of people. So in the center, looking away, she's doing the Olin Mills kind of look away, right? That's my cousin, Laura, right? So she, uh, by the time that my family moved to Texas later, or they moved from Texas to Georgia later. She was in high school and they didn't make her move, so she wasn't at the table in kind of the golden era of my life. But Christy, her sister, who's looking uh, very straight, like straight into the photo, right? She was there. She was the oldest. She watched MTV and dated guys with one earring and who drove cool cars. She was kind of the rebel, and we loved, like, I loved Christy. I, I just thought she was so cool. She would date edgy guys. Um, and Stacy, who's over here in the rocking chair, or the chair, she was uh, very pure-hearted, uh, very sweet. She's like she's the embodiment of sweet tea, and she uh, loved God. She moved to Thailand for four years uh, in her young adulthood, which then caused her to be married later in life. Married a pastor, just the sweetest people you'd ever meet. And then I would be next. Uh, that's me, little sailor. And uh, and then my brother, uh, he came along four years later. After uh, a couple years after this photo was taken, and we would sit at the kids' table and just try to get in as much trouble as we could. Like, make as many jokes, try to be as loud, and make sure we could ruin it for all the adults. Like, that was our contribution to family meals. Uh, Stacy in the chair had a sister Paige, classic middle child. Couldn't tell you anything about her growing up other than she was there, I remember. And then the little one was Adam. He always got us in trouble. He was the worst he was, uh, he was just a bizarre kid growing up. God love him. I hope he never listens to this recording. He grew up to, go, to be the guy uh, in Afghanistan and in, in Iraq who would go uh, onto the battlefield after soldiers were wounded or killed, and he would pull them off the, the battlefield. 
grew up really to be a hero. And, uh, and that's my family. In the golden age, this is the people who were there. And we were so different. The adults were so different too. But the thing about it was we were family. We all came from onus, which the word onus means burden. Uh, I don't know who chose to name my grandfather burden, but we all came from onus and Harriet Sanders. Uh, we all came just from them, and we were family. Even when new people, like my Aunt Louise, my Aunt Pam, when they came into the family, they came in by a certain pathway. They had relationship. And then at some point, my grandfather and grandmother decided that that dating relationship was going to translate into an invite. And then the invite eventually translated into them becoming family. And, uh, and man, these people have been so dear to me over the decades. When they got an invite or blessing from my grandparents, they eventually became family. And man, we were such a, a tight, tight family. We were close. Who was at your family table growing up? Do you have a, if I say, do you have a memory of your table? How many of you can see all the people sitting around the table and who's there and what their deals were? Were, they, were the people around the table similar or were they really different? They similar or really different? I remember we went to Kentucky for Natalie's grandmother's 90th birthday. And she had, grand, uh, she had children, living grandchildren, great-grandchildren. And at that time, I think she had three or four great-great-grandchildren. And I remember her praying for the meal. And she prayed for everyone by name. It was like 65 names. The food was almost moldy by the time we finally got to eat, right? But, and, and I would look around the room, and those people were so different, and my family was so different, but we, but we were family. And so we're in a series called My Crazy Family to Prepare for the Holidays, because we all have crazy, obnoxious, uh, just awkward family members. And like we said, if you don't have a crazy, obnoxious, awkward family member, the odds are you are the crazy, obnoxious, <laughs> awkward family member. So that is true of family, and that is true of our church, too. That's true of our church. And so this series, everything we're saying about family applies to our church, and everything we're saying about church applies back over to our family. So I want to show you a picture of Jesus' table, his table, okay, this morning. I love this. We've seen uh, Jesus' table in art uh, through Da Vinci's Last Supper. The truth is we all know that uh, culturally it's not correct. They didn't sit at tables like that. A table in Jesus' day would have actually been more like an L shape, and Jesus would have been at the, at the point of the L, and nobody sat in chairs. They actually all laid down on the floor, and they would have sort of laid on their sides and leaned in. And so a lot of times when you're reading the version of the Bible we read on Sundays, it says they reclined at table. That's why, because they were literally reclining by the table, so it didn't look like Da Vinci's painting. Ethnically, it didn't look like Da Vinci's painting. Jesus was not a white guy with blonde hair and blue eyes. He was a Middle Eastern Jew, and all of his uh, followers, his disciples, were Middle Eastern Jews. It's not historically correct. And so, and, and even more than that, the problem with that painting is it doesn't tell us the story of those 13 people, Jesus and the 12. It doesn't tell us the story of those 12. For me, I tend to think of the disciples as one thing. And I want us to see today uh, who surrounds Jesus' table. So Matthew chapter 10, we're just going to read verses 2 through 4. Jesus is calling the disciples to him. He's begun his ministry. He uh, has done some miracles. 
He's got a good bunch of people following him. And now he's going to take this mass of people following him. And he's going to whittle them down to 12. And so Jesus ends up with these circles. It's almost like when you throw a rock into a lake and you get the ripples that go out. Jesus has the three. And then after that, he has the 12. And then he has a group called the 70. And then there's even more, a couple of hundred who are following him. But these 12 are going to get access. This is going to be Jesus' family who he's going to spend the most time with. And so he begins to call them around him and he gives them authority to cast out demons and unclean spirits and to heal diseases and afflictions. And it says, the names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who's called Peter. And then Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. They were called the sons of thunder, the sons of Zebedee, but the sons of thunder. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, son of Alphaeus or Thaddeus and Thaddeus. Simon the Cananean and Judas Iscariot, who later betrayed him. Um, man, this is his crew. This is his family. This is his 12, right? And... Uh, and I want to tell you about each one of them really briefly. So the first one you got is Peter. And Peter is the one that seems to be the most, get the most inside conversation. Peter's the one who walks on the water. Peter's the one who first understands that Jesus might be the Savior of the world. Peter's actually married. I tend to think of these 12 people as single. Peter is married. Uh, Jesus heals his mother-in-law. It's one of his first miracles. He's the first. Um, he's, he's a fisherman. He's a hothead. How many of you have a hot temper at times? Yep. Uh, yep. Amen. Yep. Absolutely. All right. I see that hand. That's good. That's true. You guys are at least honest. Uh, and he's the leader of the pack. When Peter speaks up, everybody follows. When the first sermon is given after Jesus' resurrection and then his ascension back to heaven, it's Peter who delivers the sermon. So first is Peter. Next is Andrew, his brother. Andrew's the first disciple. We don't know a ton about him because he's very meek. He's very quiet. Some of you are more quiet, like Andrew. But he's the first one that begins to follow uh, Jesus. The next ones are James and John. Now, out of that inner circle, it's Peter, Andrew, and John are kind of the three inner circle. John wrote the book of John as well as 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and the book of Revelation. And, uh, and in John, he refers to himself not as John. He just refers to himself as the beloved or the one that Jesus loved. He had this very intimate friendship with Jesus. And so he's the third in the inner circle. He's called the beloved. He's got a brother, and they're called the sons of thunder, whatever that means. And then James we know very little about in the context of the Gospels. The fifth one is a guy named Philip. Philip's not a Greek, or it's not a Jewish name. It's a Greek name, which means that probably Philip's family uh, is culturally Greek, but ethnically Jewish. So he'd have been a little different from the other guys. Most of the other guys were very Jewish, very culturally Jewish. And so he might speak some different language. He may be more educated, may come from a wealthier family. We don't know, but we do know he has a Greek, uh, culturally Greek name. The next one's called Bartholomew. Another, uh, some other translations will call him Nathaniel. Of Bartholomew, Jesus, when he saw him, he said, Oh, you are a true Israelite. You're the real deal. Like, you are really Jewish. You are, you are a true Israelite. And Bartholomew becomes a quick follower. Jesus says that, and he's like, oh, where do I sign up? I'm in. He becomes a fast follower of Jesus. The next one's Thomas. Kind of ironic that they're right beside one another because we get this phrase in our culture, you're a doubting Thomas. It comes from 
this Thomas, who would seem to be a doubter, but really is just more of a skeptic. He wants to verify everything. How many of you are like this? Like, your kids will tell you something. Say, I'm going to need to do some homework on that. Like, or you'll read something. I need to look into that. That's Thomas. He wanted to verify what was being said uh, about Jesus. So that's him. He's one of the 12. Then there's Matthew, the tax collector, who wrote this gospel that we're reading from Matthew 10. Uh, Matthew was a tax collector. And in Jesus' day, a tax collector is kind of two things in our culture. One, uh, in their culture, you'd be a Roman employee, but you would also be Jewish. So you're working for the Roman government, but you've got to be Jewish because you're shaking down all the Jewish citizens. And so you would be seeing Matthew is basically functioning in the minds of the people around him in two roles. One, he would be like an IRS agent. And we all love the IRS, right? Like, he is the, the 2,000 years ago, first century Roman equivalent of an IRS agent. And, as if that's not enough, a mafia don. Because he will bully you, he will break your knees, he will do whatever he has to do to get the tax money that's coming to him. So Matthew is this mafia don slash IRS agent who most people would have just seen as a traitor and wanted nothing to do with. Then there's James, the son of Alphaeus, who we know almost nothing about. Then there's Thaddeus, whose name is also Jude or Judas. How bad would that be historically? Like when you're like, oh, uh, introducing yourself, you're going into the sort of first century world to start churches. All of these people, after the resurrection in Acts, they scatter to Africa to start a church in Africa and in India and in northern Europe, and they spread out, and, like, and, and the word is sort of going before, and he gets there, and, and can you imagine Jude getting to uh, his place, and he's like, hey, my name's Judas, and they're like, oh, crap, we got stuck with this guy, the one that had Jesus killed. Oh, I'm not that Judas. I'm the other Judas. And, you know, they're like, sure you are, buddy. I bet you are the other Judas, right? But that's his deal. Uh, he's, it's a crappy fate of a name, but, uh, but he is a good disciple. And then the last two are Simon the Canaanian or Simon the Zealot. Some of your Bibles may say Simon the Zealot. That's a gorilla. Uh, a zealot is a person who did not like the Roman government. And so they would hide behind buildings and in the woods, and they would come out and, and murder or maim Roman employees and Roman government officials and Roman loyalists. Simon the Zealot, he's a guerrilla war fighter who would have actually killed guys like Matthew. Matthew and Simon could not be more different. Couldn't be more different. They would have been total enemies before following Jesus. And then lastly, Judas Iscariot, the one who uh, ultimately betrayed Jesus. Even Jesus, who knew the end from the beginning, called Judas to come and be his follower. And this is his team. They're very different people. I can't imagine this group of people and the arguments that they have. Coach, uh, I assume on your basketball teams, some of the guys are very different. And I would imagine in the course of practice at times, those differences show up, maybe sometimes with arguing or yelling or some of that. That's Jesus' team too. That's his team too. There's probably arguments. There's eye rolling. I can see somebody saying something. Somebody be like, there it is. There's Simon. What a putz. You know, there's Andrew. What does he know, right? And so there's eye rolling. There's competing. There's suspicion. There's wondering why Jesus would have chosen the others. Can't you just see him around the table and they're looking at so-and-so going, why did he pick him? Why would he pick that guy? Doesn't he know what that guy used to be, what he used to do? They have very different pasts. Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector couldn't have been more different. 
Philip, the culturally Greek, couldn't have been more different than Nathaniel, who Jesus said was a true Israelite. They would have sat at the table and thought, why are you here? You're such a sellout. Or you're such a, you think you're so much better than everybody. Peter, the hothead, John, the meat, couldn't have been more different. They have very different passions. Some of them wanted to overthrow the government. Some of them wanted to see the government come up and Jesus be the Messiah who was going to uh, usher in a new Israel. And then they were going to be uh, basically like the ambassadors and the inner cabinet. And they want to come up. They have different passions. Some of them just want to be in the in crowd. The way you got to be a disciple was because you didn't get in, you didn't get to be a rabbi or a teacher. And so all of these guys had kind of gotten through their educational process and they kind of applied to the Jewish first century college of becoming a rabbi and none of them passed and that's how they get to where they are. And so that some of them just wanted to be in the in crowd and be picked. Some of them actually wanted spiritual revival. Some of them just wanted food. And Jesus could make food at times with bread and fish. They just wanted to be fed. They had very different perspectives. I tend to think of them as one thing. Twelve disciples is one thing. But they were twelve very different men. They were different ages, different life stages. Possibly spoke different languages. Had different religious educations. Different incomes, ambitions, and different end games. And can you imagine when Jesus did stuff they did not like. The conversations that happened. And Jesus did stuff they didn't like all the time. All the time. And they were getting mad. And here's the crazy part. Jesus didn't ask them to be the same. He actually valued their differences. Jesus never asked his people to be the exact same. In John 17, 20 through 21, Jesus is praying. And he says, God, I don't ask only for these 12 men, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. And that would include you and I. So right before he's getting ready to be arrested, Jesus, in Jesus' last prayer, he says, he says, God, I'm praying for these 12 guys. And I'm praying for these people who will come to me because of them. And, he's, and this is his prayer, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus was not interested in their uniformity. He was interested in their unity. He didn't need them all to think the same. They would have been weaker had they all thought the same. They would have been weaker had they all looked the same. They would have been weaker had they all had the same passions. He loved their differences. But here's what was the same about them. None of them was elite. The reason they were following Jesus is because they weren't smart enough or rich enough or from the right family to have better options. In fact, there were times where Jesus called rich people or people from the right families to follow him. And you know what they always said? I'm good. Let me go do my thing for a bit and I'll come back. None of these guys was elite. That's why they made their way onto Jesus' team. Also, all of them were sinners. Every one of these 12 men is a really bad sinner. Really bad. Now, have you ever been in a Catholic church or in a, in a big traditional church and you walk in and in the windows there'll be stained glass of all of these disciples and they all have little glowing discs, little glowing frisbees around their heads, right? And we're told that, man, these guys were saints and they turned the world upside down. And they did turn the world upside down, but they were sinners. They were sinners in a big, big way like all of us. They missed the mark with their actions, with their words, their attitudes, their intentions, 
They sin by doing wrong a lot of the time. They sin by not doing the right thing a lot of the time. And in fact, one of the ways that we can trust the Bible, if you ever have friends who are like, man, you can't trust the Bible. One of the ways that you can trust the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the stories, the biographies of Jesus, the reason you can trust it is because the disciples helped write it or they were the primary sources. And in first century Rome, you didn't make yourself the hero of a story by talking about how you failed and sinned. And these guys are helping write the story and they say, man, we screwed up. We didn't believe. We messed up. We had all kinds of unbelief. We were selfish, confused, dense, stupid, unbelieving, quick to abandon. And yet he picked us. And yet he picked us. The third thing that's similar, like my family, with all our differences, they all got to the table. Jesus loved them and he saw something in them and he invited them. Jesus had big plans for them. In his great love, he wanted to do for them, work uh, in them, work among them, work through them to forever change history. And they all got to the table. They all got to the table. That's pretty incredible. So in light of that, I want to share three things about your crazy family Uh, And these are stretches based on the 12 disciples, but I think they're true. Number one, if Jesus were the head of your family, if he was sitting at the head of a table like my grandpa, okay? Imagine the table. Imagine Jesus. Imagine you and your crazy family sitting at the table. He would long for unity over uniformity. I think we have a slide of this. Jesus would long at your table for unity over uniformity. Everyone doesn't have to have matching shirts or matching haircuts. We've all had to do the embarrassing family photo where we all had to wear the same shirts. Everybody had to match, right? He didn't, Jesus wouldn't make everybody wear matching shirts, matching haircuts. We wouldn't all have to like the same music. Uh, I had to listen to music. I, I, to this day, I can't listen to country music because I had to listen to country music as a kid, right? It traumatized me and I can never go back. Uh, we all have to listen to the same music, vote the same way. Uh, last night, I watched the skits from Saturday Night Live in 2016 in the middle of the, it's, it's Thanksgiving 2016, in the middle of the presidential sort of election cycle, and everybody's divided, and everybody's fighting, and you see this family, and they're uh, at the table, and they're beginning to argue about immigration, or LGBT issues, or political stuff, and this little girl's just watching the family fight, and she gets up from the table... And she kind of comes over to the side and she hits play on the CD player and it's Adele's Hello when that song was so popular. And all these people who've been fighting now, they're kind of just singing Adele's Hello together. And, and then she, the music pauses because Grandma and Grandpa get there and then they come in and Grandma and Grandpa are saying these horrible things, right? And everybody starts fighting again. They're getting so mad and the little girl just kind of, you see her sneak over again and, hit play and it's hello and then grandma and grandpa are singing uh, Adele and it's a really ridiculous skit but it's true sometimes we just think different in our families our differences celebrated in your family if Jesus were part of your family he would cheer for unity more than uniformity perhaps your role at the family table this holiday season is going to be to foster unity over uniformity we all have the black sheep We all have the black sheep in our family. The second thing Jesus would do, if he were the head of your family, being family would be the most important part. Being family would be the most important part. If Jesus sat at the head of your family table, he would delight in every child, grandchild, and even great-grandchild. Whether by birth, marriage, or adoption, he would love having every member of your family as part of the family. We know this because he called the 12 people by name. 
He picked all 12 of them by name. And he called them Gabriel, Tracy, Mark, Lisa, Barb. He's picking them by name, knowing their story, knowing he's going to spend the next three years getting to know them. He picks them by name because they mattered to him and he journeyed with them. And he could have picked a bunch of other people, but he picked them when others would have written them off. The third thing Jesus would have done if he were sitting at the head of your table is he would be okay with everyone being honest enough to be himself or herself. Now, a lot of our families aren't like this, by the way. A lot of our families, we feel like there's parts of ourselves we have to hide. Jesus would be okay with everyone uh, being himself or herself. If today's message has a title, it's being ourselves and allowing others to do so. It's not true of every family. Not every family you're allowed to do this. Um, but Jesus loves us too much to let us choose to be less than his best and affirm uh, that decision. See, we live in a culture right now that says that, um, I, that we have to just affirm everything everyone wants to do. And that is not biblical. That's not biblical. Jesus loves us right where we are, but he loves us too much to leave us there. So, for example, if Ryan and Eliana, after church, are playing in the middle of Bunker Hill Street, and then Rochelle and Alicia are walking out together, and they see Ryan and Ellie playing in the street, there are two things they, in our culture, the way that that would go and how it should go are two different things right now. The way it should go is they say, get out of the street. You're being unsafe. And Mark and Annie would certainly appreciate that. In our culture right now, though, what we're taught to say is, hey, who are you to be telling me I'm doing something unsafe? That is not love. Jesus' love meets us in the middle of the street while we're endangering ourselves. And he loves us right there, endangering ourselves. But his love says, I've got to get you out of the middle of the street. You're endangering yourself. And love doesn't just leave someone where they are. We love someone where they are, but we love them too much to leave them there. We begin to pull them in. And that's what Jesus did with these men. Jesus loves us right where we are, but he loves us too much to leave us there and let us stay that way. Jesus' love changed these men. It changed these men. They were different men after his death and resurrection than they were here in Matthew 10. In, Matthew 10. in fact, in Acts 17, verse 2, they've begun to so transform the Roman Empire. Within 100 years, the Roman Empire was different because of these 12 men. And so in Acts 17, 2, in the Roman city of Thessalonica, it says, these men have come here and they've turned the world upside down. They've changed the world. They were that radical. Jesus' love met them as cowards and competing and uh, just dum-dums. And they began to be changed by his love. And they turned the world upside down as they surrendered to him. He met them where they were. His love set their hearts on fire. And it changed everything about them. With your family, you can love people for who they are and where they are. But also love them in a way that compels them and attracts them to become all that God ever intended for them to be. So quickly, with regards to our church, similar implications. Three really simple things for our church. 
One, the disciples were at the table because Jesus had a relationship with them and invited them and called them friends. At my family table, the Sanders family table, my granddad's name was Owen, uh, Onus Sanders. Owen's name is Owen Sanders because we couldn't bear to name our child Burden. But I love my granddad and I love the family he created so much that we named him after my late grandfather. At the Sanders family table, everybody got there by relationship or invitation and becoming family. It's the same process, by the way, at the church, just as an encouragement. If you're here today, you're here probably because of relationship. Someone invited you. Unless you saw it on a website or uh, social media, somebody, somebody probably invited you because you had relationship with someone who was coming here, right? We could go around the room and say, how did you get here? Almost every one of you would have known somebody. Relationship became invite. Invite became you being family. I love watching D walk through the door. He's like a little brother to me. I love it. Michaela walked up this morning. She's flying up the steps. She's cold. I love it. Every Sunday, Michaela comes. I love it. Lisa snuck in the back. I didn't even see you come in. I love Lisa. She's like family to us. Even beyond the church part, she's like family. But in here, it's even sweeter to me. You are like family. We are family. So it's gone from relationship to invite to becoming family. And that's what happens with becoming part of God's family. I remember when my cousin Stacy married Joe. And Joe went from they were dating, so he got an invite to come to the family Christmas party. And then eventually he actually became part of our family. See, there became a moment where he had to cross over from just being an attender who had, relation, who had relationship and an invite to becoming family. And theologically, like speaking of our faith, here's what happens. So many times people come to church and they know church people and they say, oh, I must be a Christian. But biblically, that's not true. See, we can have relationship with Christians, have Christian family members, Christian friends. We can even get an invite to church and come to church. But there has to come a moment like Job becoming part of our family where we cross over from relationship and invite to becoming family. The Bible calls that being born again. And there comes a moment where we say, I want to be part of God's family on whatever terms, his terms. Now on your communication card at the end, you're going to see that first box says, I want to know more about how to become a follower of Jesus. When you uh, make that decision of, I'm going to move from here to here, I'm going to become part of family, that's what that's talking about. Jesus longs for that to happen. Uh, my friend Joel's here from South Carolina. I remember uh, he was part of our last church we started in Greenville, South Carolina. And there was a young woman one night, I never will forget it, such a powerful statement. She's sitting in small group and she said, she'd been coming for a little bit, relationship, led to an invite, but she hadn't quite yet been born again. And she said this, I'll never forget it. She goes, I've been coming. I like it here. I feel God in my life. She goes, I guess you could say I have a crush on Jesus. I never forgot that statement. Were you there that night? It was powerful. I guess you could say I have a crush on Jesus. Now, a few weeks later, there came a moment where that crush had to become a decision to follow or reject Jesus. And Emily decided she wanted to become a follower of Jesus. She wanted to be part of God's family. And we do that. Relationship and invite are great. You can get to the table, but it's when we become family by choosing to be all in and surrendering our life to Jesus that that, that happens. 
I pray that you've had a crossover moment where you became the family of Jesus. If you haven't, I hope you'll do that today. Next thing that would happen in our, for our church, Jesus longs for our church to be unified, not uniform. We all have to look the same, and we don't, thank God. We would all have to like the same music. We don't all have to have the same church background. We don't uh, have to vote the same way. We don't have to think the same way. Uh, those are all fine. But Jesus has called us to unity. Uniformity is an adjective. We're similar. Unity is a verb. We fight for it. It's a noun and a verb, something we do and we achieve uh, together. We go for it. Our unity and our differences will be our great witness. If we were only a room full of brown-skinned people, that would be sad. And no witness to this community. If we were only a room full of white-skinned people, that would be no witness to this community about the power of the gospel. If we all only voted Democrat, if we all only voted Republican, if we all only grew up in church, if we all only didn't grow up in church, that would be no witness to this community. Our differences are a powerful witness to this community, to the power of the gospel. And so we need to be careful. We're not looking as a church for affirmative action-style quotas. Oh, we need people of this color and this background and this age and all of that. But as a church, we need to be really careful to give special honor to everyone, but especially people who choose to cross lines of uniformity to be here and be part of this church. We honor the people who don't look just like me. It's a sacrifice to be here. If you're a teenager, thank you for being here. There's a lot of places you can be on a Sunday morning with a bunch of adults. But you've chosen to be here. If you grew up in a very traditional church and you're sitting in a cafeteria on a Sunday morning worshiping God, thank you. That's a sacrifice. If you are non-white and you're here, Thank you. It is an honor that this is your church. This is our church together. That's an honor. And we honor one another, especially where there's not uniformity. We need to practice that as much as we can. The third thing, is that okay? Can we all breathe? Like, we're not really supposed to talk about that in church, but we do. We need to honor one another, right? Number three, be yourself and give space for others to do the same. There's three, there was five things we value as a church, right? And I'm going to share three of them with you really quickly as it concerns this issue. One is loyalty. We value loyalty as a church. Since God never gives up on us, we will fight for the gospel, we will fight for one another, and we will fight for this neighborhood. God never gives up on us, we will never give up on one another. There have been times where some of you have missed a couple weeks, even a couple of months. I have never stopped praying for you. I pray for you the hardest when you're away. Because we will practice loyalty. We fight for one another. In our darkest places, we fight for one another. Second value is authenticity. Since we are each a work in progress, we will be ourselves before God and before one another. Believing we are loved just as we are, but too much to stay that way. It's what we value as a church. Love right where you are. Love too much to stay that way. So we can be honest. We can be ourselves. Uh, it was fun. The other day, Carson and I were sitting having lunch. I think, Dave, you were there. Dottie, I feel like you were there. I know Garvin's was there. I feel like Ricky. I can't remember if you were there that day or not, D. And we were talking about everybody's religious upbringing. And we had grown up on all different ends of the spectrum, right? The worst thing would have been if all of you felt like you had to lie about your upbringing and what you believed. It's one of my favorite moments in three years hearing you say, oh, I don't know if I believe this. I didn't grow up hearing this. That's powerful. 
man, that's powerful. Authenticity, the freedom to share right where we are, knowing that God's not going to leave us there. And then the third thing we value is community. Since our world is so divided, we will practice biblical community that supersedes anything that would seek to separate us. Look around. Everybody look at the people around you. Take a moment. Just look around. See anybody who looks different than you? Praise God. Praise God. Now, in our culture, those differences divide us. In our church, we're going to make sure those are the things we're going to fight to let us, let unify us. To let unify us. Providing space to be ourselves while acknowledging God loves us the same, just as we are, too much to let us stay that way will be the will give the greatest freedom for us to come to the deep, intimate, honest relationship with God and one another that Jesus died to secure. None of us is elite. None of us uh, is self-sufficient. That's why you're sitting here. You're not self-sufficient. Um, if you're here and you've got like God plus something else, Jesus plus something else, I want to encourage you to do what the Bible calls repenting. To repent is just to do a 180. It means you're going this way and you turn. And you begin to go this way. And this way is following Jesus. And I want to encourage you, if you're living a self-sufficient or a God plus something else life, I want to encourage you to repent of the plus something else and say, Jesus, only you. I only want you. You and nothing else. All of us are sinners. I don't need to sit here and talk about the examples of our sinfulness. We all know them. But we can all come to the table and become part of the family because of Jesus. It's more, see, Jesus isn't this hippie, Swedish beauty pageant winner, blonde hair, blue eye, blue sash, flowing hair in the wind, hippies, Birkenstock wearing, dinner party throwing, like, hey, everybody want to come to my dinner party? Throwing, like, dinner parties with uh, charcuterie is one of my favorite words. Jesus isn't throwing parties with charcuterie. Like, that's not him. Jesus died to purchase our invite to the family. He died to purchase our invite to the family to come to the table by turning from sin and self and trusting him. So I'm going to give you a couple action steps. Here they are. I think we've got a slide of one. You can do it right now for all I care, or you can do it sometime this week. Whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, I want to encourage you to text, call, or write a family member this week and say, one thing I love about you is. That's your homework. Text somebody. One thing I love about you is. It's amazing how sometimes we don't feel loved. We come to the table yet feel like an outsider. So this week, I want you to text someone just say, one thing about, I love about you is, sometimes we need to hear that we are loved right where we are. If you can't do that with a family member for whatever reason, do it with a coworker or a friend or whatever. Christian, if you're a follower of Christ, this week or today during Teardown, I want to encourage you to look at somebody sitting in this room and say, one thing I love about you is, or one thing I respect or appreciate about you is. By show of hands, how many times have you come to church almost feeling like you have to hang your head coming in because you've had a rough week and you don't feel like you follow God well? By show of hands, have we all done that? Yeah, all of us. Awesome. Sometimes we just need to hear, man, I'm glad you're part of this church. One thing I love about you is, we need to hear it. And then third, if you're not a follower of Jesus, I want to encourage you to give your life to Jesus and go from that relationship and invite to becoming family. It's a a line you cross. You don't just kind of ooze your way over to it. Like relationship, invite, becoming family. And you do that just by saying, Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. Thank you for dying for me and loving me. 
will you please let me be part of your family? It's not rocket surgery, as my brother calls it. It's easy stuff. But it's surrender to Jesus, total surrender. The Bible says history is going to end and eternity will kick off. Guess where? Around a table. All of this will wrap up and we'll begin eternity around a table at a big family feast. And Jesus is going to be the head of the table. And Jesus is going to be the one that we raise the glass to and toast. And we celebrate him. And all history will wrap up and we will say, we praise you, Jesus, for dying for us and rising again and being the king of the universe. We will toast him and celebrate him. And we're going to look around and see people from every continent, every skin color, every age, every language, every background, people who will shock us there, and we will all be one big, crazy family under Father God and under Brother Jesus. I look forward to that day, but in the meantime, I want to enjoy you, and I want you to enjoy one another. And I want to see Jesus work in us and through us to bring many people from this neighborhood to come to that table. Let me pray for us.